Hello everyone and welcome to this episode 15 of the In Context podcast with me, Gregor Thompson. For this episode, I spoke with Theo Priestley, who's a globally recognised and sought-after futurist and international speaker, author and authority on the future of business, technology and society. He's delivered keynotes at an international array of conferences and corporate events. He also has a TEDx talk entitled, Would You Be Happy to Follow a Robot Leader?, which you can see on YouTube. His articles have also appeared in publications such as Forbes, The European, Wired and Huffington Post, and he's also provided commentary to UK national press, radio and television on emerging technology trends. Now, before we start the conversation, if I could please ask you to like, subscribe and follow wherever you're listening and please leave a good review. It genuinely means a lot to know that people enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoy having them. But for now, enjoy this conversation with Theo Priestley. So you probably get asked this all the time, but what is a futurist? <laughs> yeah, I get asked about 100 times and every answer is slightly <laughs> different. Um, we we study trends to basically help people prepare for uh, possible and plausible futures. Um, it's not about prediction at all, to be honest. And I think a lot of people sort of understand a futurist as someone who predicts predicts what the world is going to look like, what are my lottery numbers, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is, is that what we do is we study economic trends, we study societal trends, we study uh, technology trends. We try to work out from the things that are emerging, what direction the world can go if we make the right decisions, what's the direction um, if we make the wrong ones, for example. Um, and then we tell um, our clients, we are usually business leaders or politicians, that kind of thing. Um, you know, these this is the these are the visions that we see of the future. Um, these are the ones most likely to come true. These are the outliers. These are the ones that could happen if there was a black swan event or something like that. And there's something unpredictable that led us down that path. You know this is how you should be preparing for those you know what are the next steps so some people you know like um, management consultants will throw some shade at them you know they'll say here's my powerpoint see you later you know our job is also to sort of say right well here are the next steps if you want to get to this one if this is your preferred future that you want to aim for these are the kind of steps that you should be thinking about you know what your business must do what uh, your policies must how your policies must change that kind of thing if you want to lead to that one because that one's probably got the the most positive impact for the majority rather than the minority so you guys are like the nostradamus of the scientific world then <laughs> um yeah, I mean, uh, he was a, he was one crazy dude. I, I wonder how many <laughs> mushrooms and smokes he had when he was uh, when he was doing that stuff. But um, yeah, uh, we tried not to be as vague as what he did because obviously, um, you know, he, you could take any century or any decade and go, "Oh, he said that." We tried to sort of see a bit, be a bit more prescriptive about well, what we see coming down the line. Yeah. And so I've got the book here. So this is a new book. The future starts now. I actually got the signed copy at Topping and Co. So if oh, anyone wants nice to buy one. it, there, head to Topping and Co. Um, so yeah, tell me about the book and what it's about. Yeah, so I've been resisting, oddly enough, writing a book for a long time. Um, partly because you know I, I really dislike business books and all oh, the irony, um, <laughs> uh, but also because it's a, a really large endeavour. Um, to sit down and write 60, 80,000 words on your own. Um, and the, the future is such a, a broad topic that it was not something that I was comfortable writing 
in an, in an entirety because of the the range of topics and i'm not an expert in all of them you know i concentrate purely on technology futures and what's coming down the line in that sense and then try to track how it's going to affect society but i couldn't tell you an economic impact because it's just not my thing that's not how my head's wired so um so i contacted a friend of mine another futurist in south africa bronwyn williams who co-authored the book with me and i said would you like to share the burden shall we say um and then we thought well again even between us it's still two voices it's not really distinct enough or it's not really diverse enough so we decided to actually do some outreach um to the whole community of futurists and say you know who would like to contribute a chapter on their topic of interest um and what we did was we we made sure that we had you know a really diverse range of people from all corners of the world who had expertise in a lot of different fields to give that kind of broader appreciation of, you know, what what the future could look like, what are the some of the things that we can talk about. So, um, you know, education, AI, like you say, VR, um, money, space. You know, what society is going to look like there, kind of sort of thing. Economic policies, um, and we gathered those people, pitched the book to Bloomsbury, and they were like really delighted by it because they had published something similar, um, similar kind of format on a different topic um, and that really worked well for them so they thought yeah we'll, we'll grab this one as well yeah i mean I've, I've um i've read the first few chapters and each one even though some of them can be quite almost cynical there's also <laughs> a lot of hope in it there's a lot of hope there's a lot of positivity and there's a lot of hope for change and stuff like that and one of the quotes at the start that i liked from darren Roos, who wrote the first forward he said never before has the pace of change been so fast and yet it will never be so slow what what do you think what does that mean to you um i think in general and and it's odd because he's not the first person to kind of sort of hint at that is that we we perceive change to be really fast um you know we see lots of technology changes you know perfect example is technology um you know, um, we have uh, financial startups that basically remodeling what a buy now, pay later and payday loans looks like, for example. Um, and they call it a different name, but in a sense, it's just a, a reworking of what's existed already. The other thing that is, is interesting is that, um, you know, technology moves really fast, but policy and how we... Um, I guess approach things like privacy and security and personal identity is is really slow because technology is running far ahead of us and we're still thinking about the last shift and how we treat and how we protect people and stuff like that. So I think um, there are times where it, there's like a, a almost like a dichotomy or a fork in the road where technology is running in one direction at 100 miles an hour, but we're still plodding along at 20 miles an hour just trying to understand what happened in the last couple of shifts so yes the pace of change is really quickly but at the same time we're still we, we can't run at the same pace um, unfortunately because there's just too much to consider another quote that i like that almost maybe shows where our paths will cross because the the research i'm currently doing is looking into determinism and whether we have free will or not Mm -hmm. If decisions can be predicted or if we have any control over what we do. And so there was a quote here 
where John Christian was speaking about Bronwyn and your core proposition being that the entire notion of predicting a deterministic future is flawed. So I found that very interesting with my research. Um, do you think do you think the future can be predicted in specific ways, or do you think that it, for, like for me with my research, we can look at the individual and I can you can predict with the individual what they will do based on their past behavior. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, do you think that's possible to scale? So if you scale that up to policy or you scale that up to technology, can that be predicted in the same way? Is it a deterministic future? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, so there's a couple of examples. One was Microsoft worked with um, an Israeli university, and I'm trying to remember which one it was, a few years back where they used algorithms to mine um past newspapers and social media um, from about a decade or you know two decades um, and they could predict um, with relative accuracy I think it was about 80 85 percent um, what was going to happen in the next month or two um, because of patterns in societal behavior because of patterns in um, politicians behavior that kind of sort of thing so you can use previous data to a, a, a large extent and predict, you know, uh, forwards what might actually happen. I mean, this is primarily the um, the sort of use case for collecting all our data for Facebook and, and LinkedIn and all these kind of, sort of sites where, you know, LinkedIn apparently will know before you put your status up when you intend to leave your job because all the patterns are there. You make, you, you all make the same patterns. You, you rework how your history looks, you start posting a lot more, but on specific topics to get noticed, that kind of thing. And it's the same with um, uh, with Facebook and relationship statuses. They can sort of predict what's going to happen because you, your behavior changes. So in a, in, a, in a sense, you can predict a certain amount of um, change that's going to happen purely from um, patterns of data. The other thing as well is that there's a, you know, the military uses um, prescriptive analytics, which um, uh, takes scenarios, puts them in the th- in, into an algorithm or machine learning system, um, and will it will spit out some possible scenarios to look at, uh, like forward scenarios, outcomes, um, and then the next stage is that well, if I take an action, what is the outcome of taking that action? against that outcome. Um, and then that'll project forward every decision that you make kind of sort of thing. So you get that chain of events. If I take that decision instead of that one, where's it gonna go? Um, and so the military is very good at that um, in terms of scenario planning, disaster planning, that kind of thing. So yes, we do. And yes, we can make um, predictions on you know, a certain amount of scale. I don't think anyone can make a prediction any, anything out you know, past five, 10 years that's when everything starts getting a bit hazy. So you have futurists like the pop culture futurists like um, Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamandis who, who sort of say, yes, we'll all have brain interfaces in the next 50 years. Well, I think they've been banging on about that for 50 years and still nothing's happened. Mm-hmm. You know, so, um, you know, uh, I think anyone could pretend to be a futurist if you say in the, in the next 50 years or in 50 years time, you know, we'll meet aliens. Well, of course, no one's going to call you out because it's impossible to see that far mm-hmm. into the future. So, um, uh, so predicting sort of five, 10 years is, 
is really the i guess the maximum anyone can have with yeah. a level of certainty and then after that it's just a big gray area right and so i watched you guys on the uh, modern wisdom podcast and so in that if we're going back to futurism specifically and um, you guys talk about the fact that there needs to be more young people in futurism um which it almost it almost sounds ironic that a lot of futurists are older um, because it seems like, well, I don't want to put like a negative spin on this, but if like the older you are, the closer you are to dying. And that means that you're not in the future. So the younger <laughs> yeah. people are part of the future. So it's, it's like climate change as well. That's why you've maybe got so many younger people fighting for climate change because it's their future more than it is older people. Um, and that's also like the one thing I thought of when I was thinking about this was, is that maybe the same problem with our leaders? The fact that our leaders are so old that they're not thinking enough into the future. And that's maybe why their policies don't reflect that. Do you think that's maybe the case? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Because, I mean, um, you know, we see some, you know, in Scotland, some young MSPs coming in. Um, but it's always the older ones that are dominating the conversation. You know, and I think anyone over sort of 35 to 50 is where the majority of people sit and you don't see those people coming in, you know, early twenties. Um, and, and it would be great to see people who don't have that kind of formal education in politics to come in and, and have a, you know, have a conversation and have a, a representative say. Um, and I think that the, the other problem with, with most sort of politics and politicians and things is that it's always just a four year cycle. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll think about the next four years because that's what my term is. And, and I don't care what happens after that. If I get elected, oh, Christ, I'll have to think about another four years. But, you know, if I don't get elected, eh, someone else's problem, you know, mm. um, and, you know, and I'll make some money doing speaking gigs and stuff like that around the world because <laughs> I was so famous. You yeah. know, um, that's that's the unfortunate truth, I think. And of course, as a result of that kind of short termism, um, is that policies never stick. They change because someone else will come in and have their idea of what the next four years will look like. So we don't get proper continuity and the, you know, the younger generations don't get that representation either. Yeah, I think that's like, I remember someone saying that if Obama was a dictator, we'd get so much more done <laughs> because he would have so much time to do everything that he wanted to do, whether you agreed with him or not. Um, he would get more of what he wanted to do done. And yeah, I think that's the problem with a lot of politics is just that it's four-year terms and not enough thinking into the future. But some, some form of change in politics to adapt to that would have to be radical. And no one likes radical change. And no, one, no one's talking about a revolution or anything like that because no one wants that. So the problem, the problem is well, like, that's maybe a cynical thing when you're talking about the future is that things don't really change. They do. But in these cases, they don't. Yeah. Like the, the people in power, they're, it's always going to be that way for a long time. Or at least if we're thinking pessimistically, then it's going to be a long time. Yeah. That, the other thing as well, and go back to the first point with, that Darren sort of made in terms of the pace of change is really fast, but also really slow. Um, politicians are extremely technology ignorant i guess mm -hmm. or technologically yeah. ignorant um and i'm not saying it's it, it, as a derogatory term i just don't think they understand um 
what's coming, which is why I guess we probably need more younger people people in the in the frame here. But I remember seeing a report that basically said, I think, uh, and it was most mostly talking about Parliament, um, uh, English Parliament rather than Scottish Parliament. But although, to be honest, it's probably re reflective anyway. But the, the number of um, MPs who had a technology background was was like single digits compared to the rest of them. And yet here we are in a world where technology is obviously is is almost setting the pace and setting the the tone of where the world is going. You know, you have the technology leaders like Google, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, um, all basically telling us this is what the future looks like and you have to come along for the ride. And the politicians are completely ignorant of, the f of that fact or even how to understand how to challenge them. I mean, watching the, uh, watching, you know, the Facebook conversations in Congress, for example, was just hilarious. And it's like, I can't believe that, you know, we've got this guy who's Mark Zuckerberg, who has almost 3 billion people under his roof. Um, and he's been challenged by 50, 60 year olds who have no idea what they're talking about. Um, yeah. And it's, and that's quite scary when you think about it. Yeah, I think it's it's similar to a point I think Bronwyn made in the podcast, that podcast as well, is that there, there needs to be more diverse opinions in talking about the future and when we talk about politics as well. Because if you've got the majority of people in politics making policy are old white men, you're mm. going to get policies that reflect old white men. And I'm not saying all old white men are the same, but diverse opinions for the future and for politics is what we need because if we want a successful future everyone needs to be considered in that yeah 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 um one thing i also found interesting in the book was i can't remember what chapter it was it was the one talking about um, the environment and where we're going with climate change and stuff like that and something i found interesting was where do you think the line can be drawn between futurists' opinions and conspiracy theories? <laughs> That's an interesting one. Um, I'm not. I'm not saying they're the same. But no, I can see where I can see why someone might think they're the same. Because someone might like not quite. If someone makes a prediction based on science, it might sound outlandish to someone that doesn't have an understanding in science, and therefore they might call it a conspiracy theory. And put that in the same camp as Democrats eat babies or something like that. Yeah, um, I guess if you are, well, I guess if you're susceptible to conspiracy yeah. theories, you will see everything as a conspiracy theory or, or something that has grounding in the the you know the panopticon kind of scenario where it's there's there's a they and they control everything kind of sort of thing. Um, and I guess you can't really convince people of that. I mean, I, 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 I remember coming across a flat earther on LinkedIn, for example. Wow. Um, yeah, um, uh, on that platform. I mean, he was, and he was quite adamant about it. And I just thought, you know, people are watching, reading what you're writing and thinking, well, I'm not having you in my organization, but he was having none of it. You know, he was voicing his opinion about the fact we didn't land on the moon, the earth is flat, et cetera. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't think there is a way to convince people if, um, even with science or facts, um, because they can't recognize that it's science or fact. I mean, I could, I could spend a day researching, you know, a small topic 
um, come out with a well thought out um, uh, theory and a plan for you know what I think the future might look like for this particular topic. And then someone will probably go dig around and say, "Ah, oh, but you found that fact, and that guy was part of the Illuminati, and I read about this in YouTube and stuff like that." So this is all hokum. So I mean, if uh, you know, that's the, that's the problem with the internet is that there's a wealth of knowledge out there, but there's also a wealth of mis you know misinformation. Um, and for some people, they prefer to believe in the misinformation rather than the knowledge. Yeah. Do you think so? A lot of people like to say. I want to go back to the good old days and they say the times right now are the worst they've ever been and they're so cynical about it. And I did, I think that's like very ridiculous if you just take into account various stats about equality, racism, sexism, um, te technology and the fact that we're, we're what we're able to do with phones and stuff like that. So what would you say to someone who maybe says this is the worst time to be alive, like this generation that has the worst time? I think every generation has said exactly the same thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I imagine the people in like the, you know, the, the sort of thirties, forties who are living through economic depression and a world war. I'm pretty sure that they, <laughs> they had far better grounds to say this is the worst time ever to be alive than we have today where, you know, you and I are sitting in a home, um, you know, we're earning, you know, we're earning a wage. Um, there's not an economic depression. There's not a global war going on. People aren't throwing bombs and nukes. Um, well, I hope not. <laughs> um, you know, we have, yeah, touch wood. We have, um, you know, uh, the pandemic has been an interesting look at mm. just how rapid, um, you know, uh, healthcare can step up and basically save, you know, millions of people with the vaccine. Um, and of course, you probably couldn't have had that back in, you know, even 20, 30 years ago. I don't think they would have been able to have produced a vaccine at that rate if they had a pandemic back then. You know, we would have had to have lived with, you know, pretty bad conditions, I would have thought. So um, poverty, I believe, is, is, on the, is on the down as well. Yeah. Um, I, I think we're very good at being fed the worst of the stats um, because news thrives on on not telling us happy things. No one's going to pay attention to news if it was a happy event, but we like to hear worst events because it's great to talk about it in the pub, in the work, that kind of sort of thing. Um, but no, I mean, I think every generation thinks it's the worst, but they tend to forget how bad it was for other generations. That's the problem. I think society's getting a shorter memory every single cycle. Yeah. So I, I want to move on to AI and ask a very broad question to start with. Um, do you think AI do you think AI can ever be conscious? The problem I have with that theory is what you were saying before, that technology is running so much further ahead than we are. We don't even understand what consciousness is yet. How can we decipher what consciousness is whilst being conscious? That's the, that's the problem I have, is that we can't step out of our own consciousness to examine it. We yeah. are conscious. So I think, I think it's possible that AI can be conscious, or it's at least possible for it to convince us that it's conscious. Because if we, if we are able to create something that looks just like us, and when we say, are you conscious? And it says, yes, and we believe it, 
then who are we to say that it's not conscious because we don't even know what consciousness is. But do, do you think we could get to a place where AI will be conscious? Um, so uh, you've addressed the first point, which I would always throw back, which is um, define consciousness and, you know, define intelligence as well. You know, I'm pretty sure that um, dogs and cats and some other, and you know, dolphins and stuff have only just been recognized as having yeah. consciousness. Um you know, from a, a medical field or from a, a protection point of view. Um, and then you have our sort of understanding and philosophy, uh, philosophy of, of what consciousness is, um, you know, what it means to be a human individuality, etc. So at this point in time, you know, I, I, I can't say no, because nobody can ever say it will never, ever happen. But I don't think that we will have, we'll get to a point where, we can define what a, a, an AI's consciousness looks like again because we can't define our own. But two, it could be could be a completely different form that we've n just not considered before. You know, the, hence artificial. Um, I think that we would probably discover a disembodied version rather than a body version. So I think a lot of people, when they talk about AI, they see robots and stuff yeah. like that. You know, the, the fact is, is that you'll probably find one sitting in the cloud somewhere and you're having a conversation with that. And that's the first encounter that we will ever have. You know, it's a program that suddenly developed some other level of intelligence or, or consciousness that we don't understand or can define. Um, and maybe it would actually help us define it by interacting with us kind of sort of thing. Um, and how that comes about, well... I think it would probably be by accident more than by design. I think that's yeah. the other thing as well is that is that we, we we're very good at going around in circles trying to de design artificial intelligence based on our brain, but again, we don't actually know how our brain works at all. You know, we're still discovering what makes us tick up there. So, saying that we can define a a, a consciousness or an artificial intelligence by design, I think, is is really hard. It will literally be by accident, I think. Yeah, I think the, the problem we have now is what you were saying there is trying trying to decipher what it is that makes us human. Because sure, we could make artificial intelligence and ask it if it's conscious and it could say yes and we could believe it. But the, the issue we, we have now is trying to decipher if anyone else is conscious. Because you can say that, I can say I'm conscious and I can ask you if you're conscious and you say yes, but I don't really know if you're conscious or not. You could, it could just be, I could be the only conscious person on earth. That's a real possibility. Hmm. It's not likely, but that's, that's, this shows like how much more we have to go with figuring out what consciousness is. I mean, yeah, the, like the year is 2021 and we've made so much progress, but consciousness, we've hardly made any conscious, um, I've hardly made any consciousness. We've hardly made any progress with <laughs> yeah. what consciousness is. I think that's the that's. I don't think we'll figure that out in in our lifetimes. I don't think. I don't think we'll see conscious AI, or even figure out what it is to be conscious in the first place. Hmm. Um, no, no, no. I agree with you that on that point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you said in the book. This is I really I really like this and it, and it made me relate to something else I'd heard. So you said in the book that nothing is inevitable apart from death and taxes, which um, and you also mentioned that the death part might change. 
So the quote that re that reminded me of was from Steve O, of all people, who said <laughs> one of the most profound things I've ever heard in my life. And he said something along the lines of all people, all of our, our main basic instinct is to survive. That's what we're that's the main thing that we're here to do. But the, the main thing that won't ever happen is that we won't survive. I've butchered that. That's not how he said it. He said it in a much <laughs> more like succinct way, like more beautiful way. But now there's possibilities that the death part might change or we might elongate life. How, what's happening with on that front? How are we going to um, elongate life? Yeah, so there's lots of people who are working on, and it's mostly the sort of rich white men who don't want to die, um, who um, are funding research to, to extend life. So whether that's by drugs, whether it's by organ replacement, um, whether that's by reverse engineering some DNA, you know what dna is and, and and replacing some of that so you know you stop the aging process for example um there's other people looking at the consciousness side of things so what if i upload my consciousness into the cloud what would that look like you know how could i live in a non-corporeal fashion and still survive you know um you know do i want to become a chatbot that my kids and my future grandkids want to want <laughs> Uh, want to talk to and can't imagine anything worse um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know these are the things that people are, are, are trying to uh, trying to solve but what they're doing is is really interesting well what they're doing is forgetting about the the purpose part so I mean if I you know if we crack it and say yes we've solved um, death um, you can live another 200 uh, another 100 years for example let's just let's just say it's another 100 my response would be like, well, why? Why do I want to live another 100 years? What's ahead of me? Well, another 70 years of work. <laughs> you know, the fact that I can't, you know, I can't retire and enjoy myself. You're not giving me 100 years where I can explore my creativity and humanity and, and learn something new in a sense. It's, or I can learn something new, but then I have to survive. And to survive, I need to work. Mm -hmm. You know, you've given me another 100 years of where I have to pay for something you know pay to live pay taxes yeah. all that kind of sort of thing and of course then you know you've got a you've got a health system that has to cater for another you know all all of that that, that might bring um a pension system that's you know that has to think about that kind of thing etc 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 so the, the the burden on society um is actually a lot greater but of course, they, they don't think like that. It's just a case of let's just make people live longer. Um, and of course, if you do that as well, if people live longer, then you're going to have a society that is, is consuming far more than what the earth can, then can provide. You know, you're going to have population explosion as well. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's far too much of a societal and, and uh, an impact on civilization as a whole than just saying, yeah, let's live another 20, 30 years. Um, a lot of questions need to be asked first. And the biggest one is why? Well, that was the, another point you made and that the older, like the more we live, the scarier death will be. So if we're going to live another hundred years, that means we're going to be more scared of dying because we're losing, like say if, if our lifespan goes from say 90 years to 9,000 years, the prospect of dying at 90 will be even more terrifying because you're losing all of the thousands of yeah. years of life.
So the yeah. old, the more the more we live, the scarier it is to, to die in a way. Yeah, you become trapped by it in a sense. Yeah, and that's that's no way to live. I think that's that's one of the things you mentioned in your TED talk is that we don't we don't quite know how to live at the moment. There's you mentioned like people don't well not a lot of people anyway will paint a picture because they want to paint a picture. It's all it's it's working. It's what you're saying there again, working to live. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to move on to some specific um, technology that we might come across in the future. So one that seems to be here and now is um, self-driving cars. And yeah, so one thing I want to mention is what do you think of, I know you've mentioned this in previous podcasts, but Elon Musk, what do you think? I know you probably, you probably get asked this all the time, but he is he is doing he is very much relevant in the conversation, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think he's a victim of his own um, <laughs> uh, eccentricity, um, in a way. I mean, the guy's the guy's clearly brilliant, um, and he has a lot of interesting ideas, but then at the same time, he just jacks around an awful lot. Um, mm-hmm. So and he, he over promises and under delivers um, on some things. I mean the spa- the stuff that he's doing with SpaceX has obviously propelled us forward in terms of um, understanding how you know um, reimagining what's what space flight and um, and space transportation from a reusable point of view um, uh, looks like. Um, and then um, and the Tesla, obviously the uh, the car uh, itself. Uh, you know, it's made huge strides forward to the point where everybody is now trying to do what he's done. He's almost forced the uh, automotive industry to change overnight. Um, and so they're all developing uh, self-driving cars. They're all de- developing battery-operated cars as well. You know, so that, in a sense, has been really good. And then you have, like, silly projects, which I don't understand, like the Boring Project um, or the Flamethrower, or mm. I'm going to make a robot which was his latest one, you know, uh, by using the the technology that I developed in the self-driving car, um, like in the Teslas. Well, the thing is, is that the Teslas don't work the way that he has claimed. Um, so that is a fundamental flaw in some of the things that he says. The boring project that he said was going to be this great, wonderful tunnel system, fully automated, etc., was a neon-lit tunnel <laughs> that we've kind of seen before. And it didn't really solve anything. Um, so there's 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 kind of glimmers of hope and genius in what he does, um, but I, I just think he, I think he gets distracted by the the, the by being the showman sometimes, mm-hmm. um, and um, and it's a bit of a shame because I, you know, I I love and I loathe the guy for it to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I perhaps more have I have more sympathy for him than say Richard Branson or Jeff Bezos yeah. with billionaires going to space while this pandemic is going on. I just think the the contrast between you've got the billionaire going into space while he's leaving Earth like lost in the pandemic and um, climate change and stuff like that. I just think there's better there's better ways to spend your money. I I think than you know, what's the word? Fulfilling 
or just try I don't I don't know I don't know what it is I just think it's a very it's very attention seeking and it's very they're vanity <sighs> projects that's the word I'm looking for vanity projects that's what it yeah. is yeah no I'm not I don't think a lot of people are looking up and thinking oh that's amazing what an amazing guy that is we're all just yeah. thinking keep just stay up there <laughs> Yeah. Well, now everybody's stopped talking about Branson, you know, going into space. I mean, that was perhaps the worst PR stunt ever, um, yeah. and didn't do do him any favors. Let's put it that no. way. Yeah. Um, but going, if we go back to the to the pandemic, how important did you find technology during the lockdowns? Because I think we'll we'll look back on these lockdowns as a significant part in our history that we've maybe not quite grasped onto the significance of it yet. So where do you think technology fits in with that significance? I think the obvious one is the fact that we're speaking right now mm. over this. So um, so the pandemic actually um, forced us to rethink a lot of what we want to do, both uh, personally and professionally, um, and how we want to do it. And I think it also showed that the ability to change that has always been, well, not always been there, but has been there for a very long time. But for whatever reasons, whether it was economic, whether it was um, uh, uh, business-led um, or just purely financial greed, um, it was always denied for us. You know, people, you know, companies would say, oh, we can't support remote working. It would never work. And then bang, the whole doors are shut. Um, and it's like, well, we have to support it, otherwise we go under. And lo and behold, no, you know, business. Well, businesses did collapse, um, unfortunately. Yeah. But um, you know, the companies that could adapt and could adopt these technologies suddenly found that you know we didn't have to force people into work and stuff like that. And then you, when you look at what was happening as we came out, and people saying, "Get back to work, get back to work, be in the office," um, and it's like, well, why? You know, uh, a hybrid situation, uh, you know, hybrid solution works or I can be fully remote. You know, I could work in a different country, but still fulfill my job. Um, mm. That kind of sort of thing. Um, you know, get back to work so you could eat a pret sandwich. Well, why? Because I've actually been given my local economy the money while the pandemic has been going on. You know, I haven't mm. been traveling into the city center, like, you know, London, for example, Um you know, and buying sandwiches there because I'm having to commute. I've actually been giving my money to the the shops that I that are around me in my community. So, um, so we've we've, we've kind of I think people have sort of woken up to um, why things have happened in the past, um, which has always been about you know, um, which is follow the money, in a sense. Um, and now technology has allowed to sort of opened our eyes to a better way of working and stuff like that. Um, and I think understanding the different combinations of technologies that have allowed that has given us a greater picture of what's possible with technology um, and how it can improve, you know, business productivity, um, how we even view what work is, our own working patterns around our own life uh, and our own lifestyle. I mean, I work remotely um, um, and, you know, I have a, a number of different interests and I just structure my day around that. I don't have to sit, you know, nine to five um, yeah. sitting at my desk. You know, it's like I, I can still be as productive working a couple hours here, going out for a walk, a couple hours there, 
watching or reading a book a couple of hours next time, that kind of sort of thing. And I still achieve the same amount uh, as I did before. So, Or more. Or more, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so one thing, I, like we were talking about, like staying inside, one thing, I, a question I had was, how much do you think comfort affects progress? I think for, because on, on an individual level, a lot of people would like to sit on the couch and eat horrible food rather than going outside and going for a run which doesn't, unless you listen to music or something like that, doesn't really involve technology. Hmm. I think we've maybe spent so long perfecting the inside that we're now, there's, there's, there's some arguments that say that comfort is affecting progress, at least on an individual level. But do you think, again, can, is that scalable? Is that, are, too many, are a lot of companies focusing too much on perfecting that comfort of the inside? And then that ends up decreasing progress. Um, uh, that's an interesting one. I mean, I suppose you could say comfort breeds apathy. Um, mm. You know, the familiar and the comfort of the familiar and familiar surroundings and familiar routines, and you just fall into that kind of sort of, you know, fall into that trap of a routine where um, you don't want to get out of it because you know what's what it's all about. Um, you know, day to day, what's going to happen kind of thing. Um I mean, you know, I'm surrounded by my comforts here, for example, um, but I recognize that there is an outside world out there and I do get out um, on purpose and I have my own routine, whether it's going to the gym, whether it's going for a walk, whether it's taking a trip in the car somewhere. Um, and I still think it's important to recognize that, you know, I think even more so now than before, with the pandemic forced us inside for a long time. Um, and for some you know, for some who are more introverted, that was a, that was great for them, um, I think. But for but for others, I think they missed the outside world, and it was really important, I think, to just go back out and connect with it, um, and and actually connecting, you know, connecting with nature, for example, is something that actually helps people on a mental level. So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so I think comfort, I think surrounding ourselves with comfort in that sense um creates this sort of artificial bubble where we do become apathetic to change and then we actually cut ourselves from the outside world that can actually help us on a mental level so i think it's a, a bit of a dangerous trap hmm. how um how scared are you about deep fake technology and stuff like that i think that's the scary thing about that is I think that's been the start of the kind of post-truth world that people are talking about where documents, facts, videos can be manipulated so that people never know what is the real thing or not. If that mm -hmm. if we if we start doing that on scale, the next generation that grows up and looks online, they'll never know what's true and what's not. And it's almost like like um I think it was Braun was saying in the book, it's very Orwellian. It's very 1984. I think we've always lived in a post-truth world if you because uh, if you look at every sort of historical text there's always been revisions um being made yeah. um and then to be honest we don't know what what's what people or what children are being taught because we're not that connected to that anymore um so we don't know what those texts are saying and it could be just very small minor things which basically alter the fact of what actually happened um, deep fakes are interesting because I mean, you know, we've seen some comedy videos of the guy who basically used a deep fake to pretend he was 
Tom Cruise running for president yeah. and stuff like that, which was quite interesting. Um, the porn industry uses deep fakes already to basically put the, you know, the faces of celebrities on other actresses and actors. Where I think it might might get kind of scary, like you say, is if oh, and we cannot and um, we can also um, use deep fakes in real time. So it's not a case of going back to edit it. We can actually do it in real time. I actually posted a video on Twitter, which was quite scary, of a YouTube streamer, uh, a male YouTube streamer who was using deep fakes in real time to make himself look like Margot Robbie. Um, wow. And it was pretty convincing. And I thought, oh, that, okay, now we're getting in, into some serious things here. Um, Am I really talking to Theo here? Yeah, exactly. This is actually <laughs> Steph. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but uh, so I mean you've got some interesting scenarios where it could be used quite usefully for um, you know live capture of um, during a filming process for a movie where you are basically trying to simulate a, a dead actor or a dead actress mm -hmm. so, so we had CGI doing Peter Cushing in Rogue One um, and that was obviously applied after the fact but you could now do that during the filming sequence um, mm -hmm. and, and do it live and then just tidy it up in post-production. But the other thing is that you, it, if you do that there, you can also do it for CCTV footage for you know a crime being committed where you could actually replace your face with some random person and then you could claim, oh, I was never there because that's not me. Um, mm -hmm. And you could put someone else in the frame for the crime kind of sort of thing. And then the burden of proof is actually on the prosecution to prove that a deep fake was used. And of course, and then you get into the whole thing about, well, how who's building systems to spot these deep fakes? Because essentially they're getting better and better and better. And that's going to be this cat mouse situation where somebody creates a better system and the other side is having to catch up to prove that their system can spot this other one as well. So um, mm. there could be some interest in times ahead in the next sort of five years, I think. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on what the future of health will be? I think an interesting development we had, it was something, it was something I learned last year in the, the degree I had last year was digital sociology. And one of the things we spoke about in society was that we've, became, we've become um, obsessed with numbers, not just in health, but specifically in health, we'll, we'll be thinking about our weights and our calories and then steps came into it. And they said, mm -hmm. you have to get your 10,000 steps, but there was, there was no science to say 10,000 steps was a specific number that would do anything like 10,000 steps was a marketing tool um, and then outside of health as well we have it's likes and retweets and stuff like that and that's what I think we use as our self-worth I got 10,000 steps today and then I got 50 likes on a photo and that means that I'm a, I'm a good person and um, do you see any other changes similar to that yeah, it's a bit of a dangerous slope, this, because it's we've been driven by vanity metrics and dopamine hits. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't, and, and it's all just part of a distraction, to be honest, where we're just not focusing on the right things. So, like you say, 10,000 steps, that's kind of meaningless, arbitrary number. But it's a number that, um, you know, has a tangible target. So, again, we've kind of been target led um, or numbers led. Um, you know, healthcare, I mean, what I would like to see from, from a healthcare point of view is that kind of connection between, um, for data, unfortunately, it just brings a lot of 
privacy um, questions up. But you know, um, the, you know, our our healthcare system is is pretty fragmented in the fact that my re medical records are sitting in my doctor's um, surgery. I've got medical records sitting in hospitals that I've been in before. There's not necessarily a marrying of the two. Um, I remember doing some research where uh, there was a, uh, something like 80% of doctor's notes are still handwritten and still, um, you know, uh, and can be lost and are on post-it notes and things like that. So how do you get that? into a health system where a random post-it note that a, you know, a visiting doctor or, or um, that day wrote about me that actually had a significant, that would, you know, contain significant information that should have been in a system the next time mm. I went to a hospital. It's, you know, there's a lot of things that need to be solved um, in the healthcare system before we start to see real improvement. And I think a lot of that has to do with how we manage the information and the data. Mm. Um, and then where that data goes as well, because unfortunately, you know, the the truth of the matter is data has value and, you know, um, and so that can be sold on to other third parties like, you know, Big Pharma or whoever else wants to use it for whatever reason. You know, yeah. 23andMe is a great example of um, a private company that basically got lots and lots of people's uh, uh, DNA records um, and then was bought over by a, a pharmaceutical company. Um, yeah, that was something maybe quite a few people maybe could have predicted. I think they were originally funded by um, yeah. whoever it was that we, I, I bought them anyway. So it was kind of the you know follow the money. The signs were there. Yeah, um, and one more one more thing I find very interesting is um, the dark web. So I, I I was looking into this last year, and the thing I found fascinating was drug markets on the dark web, and it. It, te it tends to show how people can govern themselves without government. So mm -hmm. they, the, the websites where people were selling drugs was just like Amazon. You had just someone who was selling a drug. They had like a number of reviews. And if you wanted to buy that drug, you would just check out the reviews and you'd know you were buying a relatively safe product based on the reviews of that seller. If you got really bad reviews, then you're out. Like no one's going to buy anything from you. Yeah. And it's just it's just incredible how that seemed to happen like people just they said well drugs are illegal so we can't really do anything but wait we actually can let's just we'll just go underneath we'll just go underground and we'll do it ourselves and they've managed to do it and people there's an argument can be made that it's actually making drug use safer and a lot of arguments are made for drug legalization but that will make drugs safer obviously but for now it seems like drug dealers are doing it for themselves mm. Yeah, the dark. Well, we've always had black markets. Wherever there's yeah, been um, a, a, a policy or a regulation set that makes something illegal, a black market will crop up, and then you'll have that network. And all, all the net, uh, the internet or the, the web has done is just provided a an easier yeah. access point. Even though it's you know it's called the dark web or whatever, and there's a lot of worse things out you know in there than drug money. Um, but you know the, the web has just provided that sort of access point for people to you know to get access but also to sell things that have been made illegal and um like you say it does actually make you think that you know who you know your access and 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 you know the rating system like an amazon rating system um actually makes it safer like you say 
um, for yeah. people to to pick a right the right supplier, know that that quantity and that uh, the quality is actually going to be safe to use, you know, whichever it is, whether it's a medicinal drug, whether it's a hard drug or whatever. And rather than denying that it exists or trying to close it down or trying to stop it, because again, close one market down, another one pops up. That's how quick the web moves. Um, so uh, I think rather than trying to just, you know, arbitrarily stamp down on it, politicians and, and people in power should actually sort of step back and understand why it's happening. Um, mm. And then, say, you know, and then understand the scale of the problem. Well, not problem, but if, if the scale, uh, you know, if the scale and the usage is there and people aren't having, uh, you know, aren't necessarily developing a habit from it, but are using it because of a condition like cannabis and, you know, arthritis and things yeah. like that, then is there something that we should be doing to legalize this instead? Yeah, very true. Um, so I want to maybe end before I've got some quick fire questions at the end, which I ask a majority of my guests always get some interesting answers from that. But before we move on to that, how optimistic are you about the future? We'll try and end on a positive note. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I want to, I want to remain positive. I mean, the, in the past, I've been fairly cynical, and I think that's just because of what I've understood from technology, uh, who's in control of it, and and what it really means. You know, things like Facebook and Google and whatnot. Um, but at the same time, um, technology can be a real power for good. Um, you can build some really amazing things with it. Connect people connect the dots in terms of you know finance money climate change um all those kind of sort of things um and so i i want to remain positive in in the mm -hmm. sense that if i see a particular future um happening i want to understand what the positive changes will be and then want to understand the negative changes so i can inform people not to make those changes and i think the more of us that look at the negative side but spin it in a way that you know um as, a, as an educational piece rather than just saying oh it's all doom and gloom well tell us why it's doom and gloom so we don't make it that those changes yeah. then i think that's when the, the you know we'll see some real sort of you know positive change happening so you know a positive that i want to see is more futurists actually calling out the negative and telling mm -hmm. us why we shouldn't do it and telling us what the the alternative should look like yeah, rather than just considering yeah. one point of view yeah, I think a lot of people will just say this is what could happen without saying this is how to stop it from happening without a mm. solution. Yeah. Um, so with the quick fire questions, um, I'm not going to take credit for these, obviously. Um, Tim Ferriss came up with the first half. So um, let's start with, if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, which gets a message to millions of people, what would you have it say? <laughs> oh, um um, so I, I, oh Christ, millions of people would see it. Where would I put it? <laughs> well, what would you put on it? For what would I put on it? Um, yeah. Read more books. That's a good one. Yeah. Like um, and I would probably put it somewhere that's often searched in on Google Earth. Um, yeah. So a popular kinda... site like Area Fifty One, for example, I'd put a giant billboard because yeah. everyone wants to know where Area Fifty One is. So I'd yeah. put a giant billboard there that you could see that a satellite is actually taken um mm -hmm. you know a picture of and it'd just be like gigantic and it'd be something like yeah read more books perfect um what purchase of a hundred pounds or less 
has most impacted your life? Oh, <laughs> of a hundred pounds or less. Um, what have I? What have I? Oh, um, my uh, slow cooker. Absolutely love it. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. What what kind of stuff do you make in it? Oh, I've made curries in it. I've made okay. um, soup. I've made um, what else? Um, gammon joints with uh, you know with Coca Cola that kind of sort of thing. It's just yeah, it's just great to just like sla slap in you know loads of ingredients, bit of sauce, mm -hmm. whatever, and just leave it overnight kind of thing. It's great. Interesting. Okay. Um, what is your favorite word? Oh probably a swear word <laughs> <laughs> well that was that's one of the questions as well but oh really we'll <laughs> um what's my you can swear though go ahead <laughs> um what is my favorite word uh it's probably cat i love cats cat. okay there you go. um what profession other than your own would you most like to attempt hmm I would love to go back and actually retrain as, as a game developer because I've seen a lot of change heading in that direction and I would love to learn the skills. Mm -hmm. um, I used to do mainframe programming back in the day and I never really okay. updated that, um, but I'd love to go back and actually learn a bit more C, um, use Unreal Engine, that kind of thing, and just start creating that way. Lovely. Um, and I just neglected to say those last few questions. That was... Um... James Lipton from the Actors Studio. That's where I got those questions. Just making right. sure I'm getting that right. I end up getting comments there. Um, so where can people find you? Where can people follow you? Stay up to date with what you're doing. Where can people get the book? Um, uh, well, you can, okay. Well, you can get the book pretty much anywhere because it's available internationally. So um, in print, in Kindle, and in audiobook. So you can get it on online, Amazon, Waterstones, that kind of sort of thing. Um, or direct from the publisher Bloomsbury. Um, you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn. I've also got a new blog um, or a new website out called metapunk.co.uk, and that covers pretty much everything to do with the metaverse at the moment. Um, so if you want to learn about the metaverse and what's happening and what, you know, again, sort of what the future looks like and what, what we need to consider for it, then you'll find my ramblings in there as well. Uh, for everyone, anyone that's watching, anyone that's listening, everything that was mentioned in the podcast and everything you've just mentioned there, that will all be linked in the show notes. But um, yeah, Theo, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, it was a very interesting one. Yeah, no, thanks, Gregor. Thanks for having me. It's been great. And that's the end of episode 15. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And like I said, just there you can find links to all references made in the episode, including to Theo Priestley's new book, The Future Starts Now, Expert Insights into the Future of Business, Technology and Society, which he co-authored with Bronwyn Williams. In the show notes, I'll provide all the links that we've been talking about just there. And as, as I said at the start, if you could please like, subscribe and follow wherever you're listening, it does mean a lot. And if you could leave a good review, that would also be very much appreciated. But for now, I hope you have a good few weeks and I will see you for episode 16 of the In Context podcast.